Galatians five sixteen to twenty six. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident: sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we ask you today that by your Spirit you would give us ears to hear your voice, that you would give us eyes to behold your glory, and that you would give us hearts to trust you in all things in our lives. We know that this is only possible by you pouring out your Spirit upon us and filling us with your Spirit. So we ask you that you would do so, that we might love, live lives that glorify you in every way. We pray this all in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, well. Good day to you. My name is Brett. If I had not had the opportunity to meet you, uh, it is my joy to be opening the scriptures with you today. Uh, this is the text that you just heard. This text we will be in for the next three weeks, including today. Uh, today we're going to look at it sort of a wide-angle lens, uh, looking at the whole text itself from verse 16 down to verse 25. Next week we'll focus in a little bit narrower and just look at the fruit of the Spirit. And then the next week after that, we're going to look directly at self-control. That'll be the fruit of the Spirit that we really emphasize and looking at uh, what we learn about that from this passage. And so that's where we're going over the next three weeks. If you've got the little booklet that you're following through, taking notes in or whatever for your community group with all the questions in it, that's why you see this text has week A, B, and C. That's the plan that we have laid out. And so uh, it's what we're going to endeavor to accomplish. Now, as we look at this text today, what I want us to do is ask ourselves the question, and I think it's an important question to ask, in the Christian life, do we live this Christian life in wartime or peace? Is the Christian life lived in wartime or peace? Do we live in the midst of some kind of cosmic battle, or are we just living in peace and everything is fine? Now, I think the answer is a paradoxical yes. I think it's both. I think there is a great battle, and I think there is great peace. And I think we need to understand the tension in between these things if we are going to live a Christian life. And so here's how we're going to approach the text today. We're going to look at it in three ways. We're going to look at the war for your life, the war for your life. Secondly, the signs of an ongoing battle, the signs of an ongoing battle. And then third, we will look at the weapons that God gives us for victory, weapons that God gives us for victory. Firstly, again, do we live in wartime or peace? Now, in one sense, 
Uh, those of us who follow Jesus do have peace. And I wouldn't suppose that everybody here is a follower of Jesus. I know we have people who gather with us every week who are trying to figure out what Christianity is. Who is Jesus? What's it about? Why am I surrounded by people all over the city and all over the globe, and certainly in this room, of people who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to take away the sin of the world, that he came to offer some kind of salvation, except it just appears that he's a Jewish carpenter. And so I know that some of you are w- working through that, looking at that. But what I would say is, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we do have peace, ultimate peace, because the ultimate war has been won on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus, where Christ died the death that you deserve to die, and he took upon himself your sin, and he bore the wrath of God for sin on the cross, and then he died, and he was buried, and then he rose from the grave triumphant, and in his rising, he triumphs over Satan, sin, death, hell, and the grave. This is the gospel story. This is the center of our belief system. So when Jesus died on the cross, he declares once and for all, it is finished. He declares tetelestai. It is accomplished. There is no further payment due. It's all handled. It's all been taken care of. This is what we believe. The ultimate war is won. God himself invades human history. God himself becomes man. He comes to us to rescue us, to fight this decisive battle in this war on our behalf. And in his death and in his resurrection, it says in Hebrews 9 that Christ has obtained eternal redemption for us. He has obtained it. It's ours. Final victory has been secured. He's made full and final satisfaction for sins. There is nothing that we need to add to the work of Christ. He's completed his work. He completed what he came to accomplish. It says in John's gospel that the ruler of this world, Satan, has been cast out. It says the works of the devil are destroyed. And Christ has secured his people for eternal life. This is the good news of what is ours in Christ. This is ours. This is what we inherit when we place faith in Jesus. We are his, he is ours, and the war is won. That's one sense of the battle that's going on, the the war for our life. Here's the other sense. The battle rages on. The war is won, but the battle rages on. We can have peace with God through the work of Jesus, but there are still battles to be fought. The war is won. But in a very visceral sense, we feel the nature of the battle within ourselves as we seek to serve God in this life. We feel it in our souls. The battle rages on. Christ has accomplished everything we would ever need to be saved. Then he did it as he died as a substitute for us. But what is waiting for us, what we are waiting for, is the fullness of that peace that he has obtained for us to take hold in our hearts fully and finally. We're waiting for the fullness of it. See, we've been set free from the power of sin. We've been set free from the penalty of sin. But we have not yet been set free from the presence of sin. And we won't be until Christ comes. See, we talk about the tension that we live in. The already and the not yet. See, the already is that we are already saved, already adopted, already born again to eternal life. We would see that in the scriptures. We already loved and accepted by God. We are his and he is ours already. But in the other sense, the not yet sense, we are not yet free from, as I said, the presence of sin. We are not yet free from disease and suffering and death. See, Satan has already been overthrown, 
but we are not yet finished with the conflict. You see this, we live in a tension. We live between the time of Christ accomplishing our salvation and him returning to complete it. This is the already not yet nature of the kingdom. So we live between what you could say is the inauguration of Christ's kingdom and the consummation of Christ's kingdom. Jesus died, was buried, is resurrected, and ascended on high to sit at the right hand of God the Father where he rules and reigns over all. This is what the Bible tells us. This is where Christ is, ruling and reigning. His kingship is inaugurated. He is the king of everything. However, we are still waiting for the consummation of his kingdom where that fully and finally takes shape. We are waiting for his glorious return. Christ has ascended on high, but we wait for his return. And the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that when he returns, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what we wait for. That's the consummation of his kingdom. doesn't mean he's not king yet. It means that the full realization of that has not yet come, and we live in a tension in between those times. And as we wait in that tension, in between those times, the Father has given us a gift. God has given us a gift. He has poured out his Holy Spirit upon us as a guarantee that the fullness of redemption is going to come. Let me show you. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to, uh, 11 to 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that you who were first... Who, pardon me, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you see the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church is the guarantee of the full redemption that is to come. It's like the down payment that tells us that there's more to this. There is a promise that we are waiting for. And it says in verse 11 that we've obtained an inheritance. That's what we wait for. Oh, it's the future promises that God is going to make everything new. He's going to make all things new. Christ is going to come and right all wrongs and make all things new. And we will enjoy eternity with him. That is the inheritance that we have been promised. And the down payment or the assurance or the guarantee of that inheritance is that we've received the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have received the Holy Spirit. None of this nonsense about spirit-filled Christians or non-spirit-filled Christians, I don't even know where that comes from, but it doesn't come from the Bible. In the Bible, Christians have received the Holy Spirit. And if you were a follower of Christ, you've received the Spirit as a down payment and a guarantee that the war has been won, but that does not mean that the battle is yet over. Let me use a historical example. World War II. Uh, there's a theologian named Oscar Kuhlman who was the first one that I ever saw using this analogy about the two most crucial days in World War II history. He said on D-Day and V-E Day, or Victory in Europe Day, these are the two most crucial days of the war. See, when the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, we've seen movie after movie about this. We've seen just stories told and the heroism that was going on in the midst of all of this as they sort of were fighting against this evil Nazi regime and everything that's happening. We see that they take and establish a beachhead on D-Day in Normandy. And historians look back at that and they say the war was won that day. 
They say that was the decisive battle. On D-Day, everybody could tell the writing was on the wall. The war was going to be won. The allies were going to break the Nazis and the war was going to be won. Along with the establishing of that beachhead, they just brought resource after resource and they relentlessly bombed all the German infrastructure and the factories. And and again, like I said, observers of history note that that is where the war was won. V-Day, or pardon me, D-Day, happened on June 6th, 1944. Victory Day, where Germany finally surrendered, was not until May 8th, 1945. That left 336 brutal days filled with blood and frustration and the loss of life. From the time where historians say the battle was won to the time where Hitler finally, well, the Nazis finally surrendered, 336 days in between. If you've ever seen the show Band of Brothers, that entire show takes place in those 336 days. There's also a book about that, but there's a great show. Why would you read it anyway? It's a fantastic book about it, or a fantastic TV series. In the midst of that, um, Hitler mounted a counteroffensive, sent 250,000 troops across Luxembourg to try and break the Allied lines. So as he sends these troops across, creates a bulge in the Allied lines 50 miles deep. It's called the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, tens of thousands of people lost their lives in that, including civilians. Tens of thousands. That whole battle happened after D-Day, when historians say the war was objectively won. Uh, The Battle of Berlin, which you can look up as another crazy battle where tens of thousands of people lost their lives, that happened after D-Day. See, historians go, ah, the war is won. Even prime ministers and presidents declared that the war was won on D-Day. And it objectively was. But it took 336 days for the Nazis to surrender. You think the guys in the trenches felt like the war had already been won? Well, they're seeing comrades fall and their friends fall and they're seeing medics come to the front lines, into the trenches, amputating arms to save lives, taking casualties and binding them up to those who are in the war, who have seen the battle that would win the war, yet have not seen the full victory on display that they would one day get to enjoy the fruit of that victory. Do you think they felt like the war was over? No. See, the war was won, but the battle continued on. Christ City, listen to me, because there's a battle for your soul. The war for your life has been won, and we are free to come to Christ. But there are still signs of an ongoing battle. An ongoing battle is being waged, and there is evidence of that in the tension of our Christian living. See, the juxtaposition in this text in Galatians chapter 5 between the flesh and the spirit, it's a picture of the ongoing battle that was happening in the Galatian church, and I think it's a picture of the ongoing battle that happens in the Christian life. You know, C.S. Lewis, who lived through a couple of wars himself, said there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. There's no neutrality in the kingdom of God. Look at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
There's a battle raging in our hearts. That's why you can't be passive in the Christian life. There is no neutral ground. Every square inch, every split second of your heart is being claimed by the flesh of the Spirit. There's a battle going on in our lives. Yes, the war is ultimately won, but the battle continues. Because we wait in between the times of Christ's ascension and Christ's return. See, our sinful desires wage war against the Spirit. And the Spirit wages war against our sinful desires. And the heart of every Christian becomes this battleground of these conflicting desires. At least it should be. At least it should be. In fact, I think the absence of conflict in our lives is actually a sign that we're not doing well. It's a sign that we need to figure out what's happening in our lives as we pursue God. There's no conflict in our soul. Here's what I mean by that. Before I became a Christian, uh, you, I would have not understood what you meant when you said the desires of the flesh. Okay, the desires of the flesh was just what I wanted to do tomorrow. I didn't have a category for desires of the flesh before I became a Christian. That was just my life. Oh, look at the desires of your flesh. I'm like, I just, I just think it's what, doing what I want to do. That wasn't the way I conceived of it. But when you come to Christ and you turn away from that and you turn toward God, you turn and you repent. Spirit fills you. You receive the Spirit. And something starts to happen in your soul. Now you don't always want to do the things that you used to want to do. But still, though you want to please God, you still are tempted to do things that you know are not pleasing to Him. And there's all of a sudden a war going on that did not exist before you came to Christ. I didn't know there was a battle. Until the Spirit started to work in me in a way that I could understand. Then all of a sudden, there was a war. So I come to Christ, and all of a sudden, I start having problems. I start to get discouraged. I start to get disheartened. Why do I feel like this all the time? Like Paul says in here and in Romans 7, he goes, I, I don't do the things I want to do. It's things I want to do, but I don't do them. What's happening to me? And see, that can be very discouraging if you don't know about verse 17 in chapter 5 of Galatians. Look what it says. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, at war, at odds with one another, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. See, somebody helped me to understand when I was young in Christ that this struggle, this battle that was going on within me, was not something I should be ultimately disheartened about. It was something that I should be encouraged in because what I was experiencing was an indication that the Spirit was at work in me, waging war against my selfish desires, the selfish desires that had ruled my life for years. I should be encouraged in this. Now, that didn't feel like a thing that I could really take, but that's what they told me, and I believed it was true. So you need to engage in this battle. It's not a passive thing to live a Christian life. It's not a let go and let God kind of thing. Which is not in the Bible, for what it's worth. Right? It's a nice cross-stitch thing. You hang it on the wall, let go, let God. It doesn't mean anything. I don't even know what that means. We're talking about active obedience. You're going to see this later on when we get down to verse, I think it's 25. When we're keeping in step with the Spirit, the Spirit leads, but we walk in the Spirit. It's an actively obedient thing. Like, we're not determinists. Are you with me on that? We don't just sort of sit back kind of passively in the you know, recliner of our life and just sort of hope that everything's going to work out. That's not Christian living. 
So if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've got to know, if you're coming to Christ, you're signing up for a bit of an ongoing battle in your heart. It's okay, though. It'll only last till you die. And then, and then it'll be okay. Look at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, walking by the Spirit. What is that? Well, that is allowing your conduct to be directed by the Holy Spirit. And the desires of the flesh are the sinful desires of your fallen nature. So you who follow Jesus, will you experience the desires of the flesh? Will you experience? Yes, 100% you will experience that. But the point is, if you're walking by the Spirit, you are free to not indulge the desires of the flesh, and you are free to not gratify the desires of the flesh. You're free. You don't have to. You're not in bondage to them. You're free to walk in the Spirit. Verse 17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. They are enemies. They are locked in a battle. The flesh battles against you, but if you're in the Spirit, you can battle back, and this is the thing. You can be assured of victory because the war is already won. We are fighting for freedom from a place of freedom. We are battling inside a war that's already been won. Let me show you what I mean. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, puts a different gloss on this for us. It says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, still talking about Satan, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we were before we placed our trust in Jesus. We were dead, disobedient, caught in the passions of our flesh and under the wrath of God. And then verse 4 starts out with, I think, two of the most glorious words in the whole Bible. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There was a war for our lives and we were lost and we were dead and we were continuing on in our lostness because we were dead. But God made us alive in Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved. God did something in our lives. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 talks about this. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we are His, the war is won, and yet the battle rages on. But it doesn't wage, the battle does not rage on, or we are not waging that warfare from a place of the kingdom of darkness. We have been transferred to the kingdom of His dear Son. You see, He's done something in our lives. We were dead and lost, and He found us and made us alive, brought us into His kingdom. Something's happening in our lives. And here's signs of the ongoing battle in our lives. Here's the signs of the ongoing battle. Verse 19 in Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. This is how we normally read this list, right? So jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, or things like these. 
I like to read those lists quickly. It's less painful. Works of the flesh are evident. They are unmistakable. They are apparent. They are obvious. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Works of the flesh are evident. Easy to see. Now, this is obviously not an exhaustive or comprehensive list, but it is a list that is indicative that the flesh is winning the battle. Hey, the war's won, but how's the battle going? When we see these signs of the ongoing battle, we know that the flesh is winning. Now, along with some other commentators, I think we can group these things into four headings or four battlegrounds, four realms where the battle is continuing to occur. So when the signs of the ongoing battle in the realm of sexual sin, this is what we'll see. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. When the signs of the ongoing battle are in the realm of the religious world, religious sin, we see idolatry and sorcery. Now, those are not words that are located in the first century and need to be left there. Those are words we need to bring with us into the 21st century, into the city of Vancouver uh, today. See, idolatry is not just setting up a little shrine and putting some fruit in front of it. Idolatry is elevating anything above God. Yeah, no, idolatry happens to us when the flesh is winning. When the signs of the battle, the ongoing battle that we are currently locked in, in this season of life, are in the realm of relational sin, this is what we see. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. When the signs of the ongoing battle that we are locked in are in the realm of, you could call it partying, drug and alcohol abuse, sin. It says we see drunkenness and orgies. Now, listen, I don't want to talk about this, but I'm going to, because I want you to understand it clearly. Orgies is the Greek word komoi. And I'm a little bit frustrated at the ESV translation of this because it doesn't need to be translated orgies. It just means I have to explain orgies, and I don't want to talk about that. You're uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable. Let me put you, let, let me put you at ease. It's not... I'm going to give you a definition. I like this definition. I think it's funny. This is the definition of komoi, which is the Greek word. A nocturnal and riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows who after supper parade through the streets with torches and music in honor of Bacchus or some other deity and sing and play before houses of male and female friends, hence used generally of feasts and drinking parties that are protracted till late at night and indulge in revelry or partying. It could have been translated frat parties. Okay. That's all it, now, I'm not saying that the, the translation they've used is not included in frat parties. What I'm saying is, is it doesn't need to be that pointed. You could just talk about riotous parties that are occurring and all the debauchery that goes on therein. That's what it's saying. And then he says, and things like these. Isn't that a great way to end that list? That is Bible speak for, 
I am writing this with a quill on parchment, and parchment's not cheap, and I think you get my point. I think that's what he's trying to say. And things like these. He's not going to fill the page with all of the different things that would be works of the flesh. He's going, I think you get what I'm saying. And then look at the second half of verse 21. This is what it said. I warn you, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying, if anything on this list and the things that I'm implying by this list are things that you make a habit of doing, where your character and identity are formed and marked by these works of the flesh, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The point is, if your identity is formed by and found in what the Bible defines as sexual sin, religious sin, relational sin, or riotous parties, these are the works of the flesh that evidence that you do not belong to Christ and that you are not walking in the Spirit. But if you are walking in the Spirit and you do find your identity in Christ, he says your life will be marked with these signs of the ongoing battle. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says, against these things there is no law. Again, this is obviously not an exhaustive or comprehensive list, but it's a list that is indicative that the Spirit is at work in you in the ongoing battle and that you are battling well in obedience to God. Next week, we're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit, and then following week, we're going to look at self-control, so I'm not going to go deep into this right now, but what I do want you to notice is this. Paul writes these virtue and vice lists in other places in the New Testament as well. By my count, nine other times. And this is the thing about them. They are not abstract to the people that the letters are being written to. Right, we, we read this list, and we're like, okay, we got four categories from you, Paul. Thank you very much. Maybe you want to like elaborate on why those are the four categories you chose. Well, here's why. He's writing to a people who he knows. The people who he knows, who he's writing to, those were probably like a punch in the gut. Those four categorical areas where the battle that is ongoing was being won in the flesh, the flesh was winning in that moment of the battle, those are things that probably would have cut to the heart of the church in Galatia because they know that these are things that were going on in their community in the midst of the conflict that they were experiencing. So there's a, there's a context that we need to pay attention to. And the context of the works of the flesh in this passage is the internal conflict in the church of Galatia on the nature of salvation. They were arguing about what it meant to be saved and how you got saved. They were arguing about the gospel. And evidently in their arguing, the works of the flesh would pop up. And you would see some of these things. New Testament theologian Scott McKnight says, speaking about vice lists and virtue lists, he says they are context-specific. In the context of church conflict, the observer will find the manifestation of the flesh in such things as factionalism, and will find that the Spirit, when in control, will produce such things as love and patience. In other words, we interpret these lists incorrectly if we take them out of their context and pretend that they are complete listings of either the flesh or the Spirit. These are the kinds of things Paul wants to focus on because he's concerned with conflict in the Galatian churches. 
So here's what I mean. If Paul the Apostle were alive today and he was writing a letter to the Church of Vancouver, the works of the flesh would be a very targeted contextual list of things that the Church in Vancouver are currently manifesting as they lose their battle in the flesh. It would be very specific. And it would probably cut our hearts. It would probably feel like a punch in the gut. If Paul was to write a letter to Christ City Church, I think it would hurt. Because it would be very specific. We don't want to just take these things and pull them out of their context and pretend that they're a comprehensive list of, well, these are the only works of the flesh. He says the works of the flesh are evident. And then he says, and things like these. The signs of the flesh are evidence that people are actively opposing God in a season of their life. And the signs of the Spirit are evidence that people are surrendered to God completely. See, in verse 19, notice that he says, now the works of the flesh. And then in verse 22, he says, the fruit of the Spirit. It strikes me that the works of the flesh are things that we actively do when we're actively disobedient to God. We do them with a sort of determination. There's an action. There's a volitional thing that goes on. Our will is conformed to the works of the flesh, and we give ourselves to them. But, but then you look at it and say, it's the fruit of the Spirit. So it's a little bit different. When you are submitted to the flesh, then you all of a sudden are going to go and do works of the flesh. But when you are submitted to the Spirit, you are surrendered to the Spirit. The Spirit produces fruit in your life. There's something God does in your life that you get to then experience and live out. To me, it sounds a little bit like what Jesus said in John 15. Verse 4, he says, Abide in me, which is dwell in me, make your home in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So you bear fruit when you abide in Christ. You dwell in the fullness of your union with him, and the Spirit produces fruit in your life. See, we're not passive in the Christian life. We're actively engaged. But don't forget that something like surrender to the will of God, that's an active engagement. It's the Spirit who produces fruit in our lives. So we understand that the war for our life has been won and that we are free to come to Jesus. Number two, we understand that there are still signs of an ongoing battle in our life. And number three, and I would say thanks be to God, he has given us weapons for victory. Weapons for victory. Here's what I mean, verses 24 and 25. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Do you see the weapons that he's equipped us with in here? Two mighty weapons in the arsenal of how we can fight against the flesh, how we can live in the already not yet tension of the kingdom of God. This is what he says. Number one, we can crucify the flesh. And number two, we can keep in step with the spirit. These are the weapons he's given us. Now, crucify the flesh, what does that mean? Well, to quote the great scholar John Stott, who I'll quote again in a moment, he says, the crucifixion of the flesh described here is something that is done to us, not done, or pardon me, is not something that is done to us, but by us. It's not done to us, 
but by us. This is what he means. If you look at Galatians 2.20, which we were in, I don't know, six months ago. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Okay, that is a glorious passage of Scripture. It is gloriously true. fills me with joy and hope, and it should do the same for you. But that's not what Galatians 5.24 is talking about. In Galatians 2.20, we see that by faith, we have been crucified with Christ. We are identified in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. You can see this in Romans chapter 6 as well, that we are united with Christ in his death, and we are united with Christ in his resurrection. That's what it says in Romans 6. That's not what Galatians 5.24 is about. Galatians 5.24, when it says that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, what it's saying is, is I think it's a graphic depiction of what repentance from sin looks like. This is what it looks like when we repent of our sin. It's a picture of putting to death the old self by nailing it to the cross. Now, it's not an accident that Paul uses a crucifixion metaphor. Jesus actually used a crucifixion metaphor before he was crucified. In his ministry, and in his teaching, it says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, self-denial and putting to death of the flesh was something Jesus was talking about too. It's what it looks like to surrender to his will and to follow him as Lord. So if you belong to Christ, you've crucified the flesh. Now just think about the act of crucifixion. Crucifixion has an intended finality to it. It's not a punishment where somebody gets flogged or whipped or beaten. It has an intended finality to it. It's supposed to be an execution method. So when you take a criminal and you put a spike through his wrists and a spike through his feet and you stand him up on the cross... The intention is not that that be some form of discipline or punishment. The intention is that that person will not come down from the cross till they're dead. There's a finality to it. And I think what Paul's getting at is that that's what repentance looks like in our life. There's a finality to it. It's putting to death the works of the flesh in our life. It's not punishing the works of the flesh, kind of keeping it just a little bit alive, maybe thinking that you just welcome that sin back into your life at some point because it's really comforting and I kind of like it. He's saying put it to death. Let it hang on the cross till it's dead. John Stott, who I'm going to quote again in a moment, was noted as one of the most disciplined, serious followers of Jesus. And I had the opportunity to talk with a guy this week who met him and ministered alongside him. And he said when he met John Stott, they were all be, trying to be really deferential to this great Anglican, pre, uh, you know, he's an Anglican minister from the Church of England, trying to be really deferential to him. He'd written a lot of good stuff. He was a great scholar. He's written a lot of uh, commentaries and books about the Bible. He wrote a great book called Basic Christianity that's been used all over the world. And, and he said he was just kind of like, hey, uh, Dr. Stott, whatever you want to do, hey, we'll just do the service the way you want us to do it. And he said John Stott was humble and kind and just emanated sort of a love but also holiness, but a love and a graciousness that just embodied the humility that we see in Christ. He said he was a great man, but he was holy. This is what he said. The first great secret of holiness 
lies in the degree and the decisiveness of our repentance. If besetting sins persistently plague us, it is either because we have never truly repented or because having repented, we have not maintained our repentance. He's basically painting a picture for us where we kind of halfway nail our sin to the cross and then once it's sort of starting to die a little bit, we kind of go and pull the, pull the spikes out, take it down, nurture it, make sure it's okay. He says that's not really repentance. He says we belong to Christ, therefore we crucify the flesh. In Christ City, hear me, you can't do this alone. And the good news is you don't have to. You can try to do it in your own strength, but you'll fail. Look what it says. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now notice that we belong to Jesus. He is the God who completes the work that he starts in us. Yes, the war is won and the battle rages on, but by the power of the Spirit, we can actually put the flesh to death in repentance. But what does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? That phrase, keeping in step with the Spirit, it's the same phrase that's used when soldiers march together in unison. Right? I grew up with a father who was in the military before I was born. And so I think, you know, as a little kid, you're kind of you're shuffling along a little bit and kind of not walking how you're supposed to be walking. And I would hear this. I would hear, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, left. I seriously would hear that. It was hilarious. And I would go like, yeah, Dad, I get it. Because when you're in the military, you learn to march together in formation. You learn that whether you're walking or whether you're running, you are walking and running to the cadence of the person who is calling out left, right, left, right, left, right, left. Keeping in step with the Spirit is a picture of that, but the Holy Spirit is the one who calls out the cadence of your steps. Keeping in step with the Spirit is walking in obedience to Him. See, when you're running or walking in the military, I did not go into the military because I heard enough of these kind of things as a kid to tell me that it wasn't a good idea for me. You don't ask, when are we going to have a break when you're marching? You don't ask, perhaps we could have some water. You don't think, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to stop for a second and just lay down and have a break because this pack is heavy and I'm tired. No, the person who's directing you will let you know when you're going to stop, when you're going to break, when you're going to rest, when you're going to sleep, when you're going to eat, and when you will utilize the facilities. We keep in step with the Spirit. That means if you're walking along in formation and you're stepping with the Spirit, but you just decide, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to cut out on my own. I'm going to go my own way. I don't need to walk in the Spirit. I'm going to enter into the flesh. I'm going to do what I want to do. We break formation. We are not keeping in step with the Spirit any longer, and we get ourselves into trouble. But think about this in the military language that this word is implying. Think about it. You're marching along with your unit and you just deviate and step off to the side. I'll tell you right now, somebody's going to come alongside and lovingly grab a hold of you and say, back in line. Oh, that's the church. We don't keep in step with the Spirit alone. We keep in step with the Spirit together. If you're keeping in step with the Spirit, you're not alone. 
when you fall down flat on your face and your face is in the puddle and somebody walks up beside you and goes, let me pick you up, bring you back in line. When you're struggling, when you don't know if you can carry your pack any longer, we're going to see this in Galatians chapter 6, we're to bear one another's burdens in Christ. We take hold of that and carry it for one another. And that is our joy and it fulfills the law of Christ. That's what it says. We don't do this alone. None of our keeping in step with the Spirit is done alone because we've been united together, not only with Christ, but with one another. Walking in step with the Spirit means He leads and we walk. We need these battles for victory, these weapons for victory. Putting our flesh to death, marching in step with the Spirit, all together as the body of Christ. Because the battle rages on, though Christ City, be encouraged, the war is already won. Would you stand with me today as we respond? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.